Tonight is the night of the full moon, early February. So we're well into the period of winter retreat time. A month has gone by already, another couple of months to go. One of the aspects of a Dhamma practice that is, I think, really central in our lives uh, is the way that the mind relates to the unknown. The question or that sense of what's going to happen, how's it going to be with my practice or my body, my health, my retreat time, how's it going to be in the monastery, how's it going to be in the the world around us, the climate, the welfare of the planet, the economy, my family, all sorts of areas of, of our lives, our world, from great and small, near and far, there's a sense of uncertainty, the unknown. It's important to look at how the mind relates to that quality of the unknown, the uncertain, the unpredictable, because that's the nature of life within this body, within this life, and all around each of us. There's a a high degree of, of uncertainty, of change. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know how things are going to be. When the mind is coming from a place of habit and ignorance, self-view, then what do we do with the unknown, the mystery of how things are going to be? We worry. We fill up that unknown with a, with some planning. We create a set of things we want to do and things to fill up the future with. We create sets of beliefs adopt an idea or a picture of how things are, how things should be, how they're going to be, and we fill up that unknown with belief and hang on to the belief. And at the same time, we create a fear that it's not going to go that way. It's not going to be like this. How am I going to handle it if it's not this way and if it goes that way instead? We have also the habit of filling up the unknown with opinions, with beliefs, with insurances, either mental or financial, trying to make everything certain and come to agreements and write everything down and cover everything with the policies, formal and informal, just to try and pin down that quality of uncertainty of not knowing, trying to make ourselves sure, trying to ensure ourselves, because we're not sure. <laughs> the future is not sure, so we ensure ourselves, try and make ourselves sure to guarantee that nothing bad can happen. Or if it does happen, then we've got padding, we've got coverage, we're going to be okay. So there's many and various ways that the mind relates to that quality of the unknown, of the future, and the possibilities. These are sweeping statements, we all have our own different ways of handling things. But if we look around, look at our own life, look at the way that we relate to the events of a day and the life here at Amravati or life in the world around us, we'd all recognize that, yeah, this is what we generally do as human beings, coming from a place of ignorance and habit, self-view. This is how we relate to the unknown, to the uncertainties of life. We try and fill up that unknown, that void, with something that gives us a sense of reassurance, or we just distract ourselves fill the mind with 
something more exciting, more compelling, more to get our attention off. There's feelings of insecurity and threat. There's feelings of anxiety and instability. We distract ourselves with things that are exciting or compelling. Or we just switch off, we just go numb, we just drink ourselves or sleep our way through a day, just switching off and being as numb and as insensate as possible. Speaking from my own experience. (laughs) These are the ways when the mind comes from a place of ignorance and self-view. This is how we tend to relate to the unknown and we hold that as some kind of terrible threat or challenge. In this respect, many years ago I came across, I think it was in one of Joseph Campbell's books, it was like a brief synopsis of the beginning of one of the Upanishads, one of the ancient Indian scriptures. I think it's the Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad, if I remember correctly. So the, the brief version goes something like, Originally there was the mind of the Absolute filling the infinite void. The actual scripture itself is far more fancy and colorful (laughs) and decorated, but the essential meaning is originally there was just the infinite uh, void filled with the mind of the Absolute. And then in the mind of the Absolute, there arose the thought, I am. And following along after the thought, I am, there was fear. And then following fear arose desire. That's a very shortened version. Even though it's cast into a mythological form, again, in sort of cosmic language, I feel that it's actually representing very accurately what happens in each of our minds. Originally, or at the basis, there can be just the the mind awake to the the present. And then as soon as there's any kind of self-centered thought, any kind of eye-making and mind-making, any kind of ahankara, mamankara, then as soon as there's an I, then there's an other. And then the mind immediately holds that other as something threatening or you know, something that is out of our personal control and therefore is dangerous. And that quality of threat or unknown then creates fear, conditions fear. And then following that, there's a desire to fill up, to placate that fear or to distract the mind with something or find something that will protect and keep me safe. So even though that Upanishad is cast in very sort of grand mythological language, it also represents very directly what happens in our minds as the habits of self-view and conceit arise and take shape. There's a self, then there's the other than self, and then the sense of threat or danger or what might happen to me and what might come out out of that other and be a danger, be threatening, be challenging to me, or might take away what I have or hurt what I am. So the alternative then, what the Dhamma practice guides us towards, particularly the development of insight, is to meet the unknown from a place of selflessness, letting go of self-view and conceit, and to instead open the heart to the unknown. That feeling of threat or danger or insecurity 
that's very directly connected to the habits of eye-making and mind-making, I would say. And when there's no sense of self, or the sense of self is seen as empty, as transparent, insubstantial, then rather than the unknown being a danger, being a problem or a threat, being off-putting and an enemy or a problem that we need to solve and get rid of, we need to know what's going to happen, we need to know what's out there, we need to know how things are going to be. Instead, when there's no sense of self, or the sense of self is seen as completely transparent, empty, then that unknown is experienced as mysterious. There's a quality of wonderment. The heart is open to that unknown, but it doesn't hold it in terms of danger or of anything that's that's bad or wrong or unwanted, unappealing. So this quality of openness then, I would say this is really the source of faith or sadha. It's a lot to do with that when the heart is open to the unknown, open to the possibilities, open to the way things are, free of self-view, free of conceit, then what arises is sadha, a quality of confidence or trust, that sense of faith. But sometimes sadha, the Pali word sadha is translated as belief, but I would say that's a bit of a mistranslation. Belief is something that you hope is true, (laughs) the mind is hanging on to it and hoping it's true and trying to get rid of the unknown by hanging on to an idea of what's true or what's real. It's a belief, I would say, generally is coming from a place of anxiety or self-centeredness. But faith, sadha, in Buddhist psychology is taken as one of the spiritual faculties, a great spiritual strength is extraordinarily important in our practice, so that the way that quality of faith is most directly cultivated is through that readiness to turn towards the unknown and to let go of self-concern, self-view, and open the heart to that mystery, the indefinable, the unnameable, the unknown. I was contemplating this quality of faith, talking about it the other day, I think in one of the Dhamma readings, or somewhere, <laughs> I forget, one of the uh, teaching occasions. And I was reminded of just in December, when Ajahn Kongrit and I were leading a retreat in Pak Chong, which is about two or three hours drive east of Bangkok. I've been leading a week-long retreat there, and the way that things worked, we, we finished the retreat early in the morning, we kind of wrapped things up and closed the retreat. We needed to get back to Bangkok by midday because of an event in the afternoon that we had to get ready for. And so the way things were sort of landing in terms of a schedule, there was a question of where will we have the meal, the meal offering. And it was a little bit too early in the morning to get things prepared and to have a meal before we set off. And also, the suggestion, when you get to Bangkok and get to Dhammaram, maybe you could just get there in time. If we finish the retreat and get there in time, then we can have the meal at Dhammaram. But it's like, well, you know, Dhammaram, the, the meal offering's at 8.30, and if we arrive there at like 11, then that's really inconvenient and a hassle for the folks there and wouldn't really fit in very, very well. So, not to get too drawn into the details, so I said, well, 
We're going to be passing through Saraburi. It's a biggish town. Why don't we just find a place to stop? The retreat manager who was looking after these arrangements said, you know, we can find a place to eat in Saraburi. And so then over the next few days, little mentions were being made of trying to find the place to stop and have a meal in Saraburi and trying to pin it down and not having much luck fixing where we're going to have the meal in Saraburi. And I know I tend to be a little bit overconfident, <laughs> look on the bright side of things. I said, yeah, Saraburi is a town of like 60,000 people. I have faith that there's somewhere, as a noodle shop must be open at nine in the morning, somewhere in Saraburi. We can just go there and drive around a little bit and find something. It was interesting. I'm not trying to criticize our beloved and very diligent and caring manager who's trying to pin it down, but looking up on the various Google searches or TripAdvisor and you know, all these different WhatsApp services, trying to find an eatery that was going to be open at 9 or 9.30 in the morning in Saraburi. And then when we got there, going to the places and, oh no, this isn't really open at that time. Oh, this place is closed down and this one isn't at the address it's supposed to be at. And, and so I found myself saying, I'm sure that in a town of 60,000 people, there's somewhere where the humans can eat at <laughs> nine in the morning. And lo and behold, just, it didn't take us very long. After visiting a couple of places that weren't open, oh, there is a perfectly ordinary noodle shop available. So we went in, sat down, and then another person who was there, a total stranger, very kindly stepped up and offered to pay for the whole meal for us. As we were departing, our beloved and respected retreat manager said, that wasn't too bad, was it? <laughs> I had confidence that there had to be something that was going to serve the purpose. And also, even if there wasn't, it's only a meal. The world keeps turning. Even if we didn't find a place to eat, we would have survived and been okay. Again, I'm not trying to put down our caring and diligent and thorough manager who worked in a very dedicated way to look after us. But I felt that was just an ordinary, everyday, practical example of trusting the capacity of the universe to provide. If there's something that, that we need or something that is a, seems appropriate to the time, the place, the situation, if we let go of a, a sense, I've got to know, I've got to have a plan, I've got to have this fixed, I've got to, have this, I've got to be sure, we've got to know how it's going to be, but rather, well, let's just open the attention, look around and see what happens, and then be adaptable to what the universe provides. That's not the most exalted example of sadha, I would say, <laughs> but just came up in conversation a couple of days ago, so I thought that was kind of a good example. I had no idea, I'd never been to Saraburi in my life before, but I thought, well, yeah, in a town this big, there's got to be a noodle shop that's open at nine in the morning. And sure enough, it was fine. We were nourished, and the people at the Noodle shop were very surprised and happy to have a couple of senior monks sitting at their tables, and the locals were happy to make an offering, and everybody gained. And also that our beloved manager was able to appreciate, wow, I didn't have a plan. <laughs> I didn't have it pinned down, and everything worked out okay. That's a good lesson. So sadha, faith, it's not kind of an anxious belief, but it's more of a readiness to step into the unknown, which uh, when you don't know where your foot's going to land, but that readiness to step forward and to 
make that movement into the unknown, to be open to the unknown and to trust, to have confidence that if the mind is attuned to the time, the place, the situation, that you'll be able to work with it appropriately. So confidence, trust, these are all, I think, very appropriate words to translate. Sadha, faith, often people take that as a bit too much of a theistic tone, has a bit too much of a theistic, sort of God-based tone to it. If you've grown up in a Judeo-Christian environment, faith is, as a word, is taken to mean believing in some deity or some principles, but it's really not a belief. It's not a kind of a holding on to a set of ideas or hopes, but rather, I would say, it's a complete openness of heart an attunement to the time, the place, the situation, and a readiness to adapt, to step into the dark and to see where your foot lands and then to adapt accordingly. In the Buddhist scheme of things, uh, so like we've been chanting the Matika for these various folks who've died in recent days, for Chandapanyo in uh, Temple Forest Monastery and for Takshila's father and then for Mr. Abhisundar, uh, Dr. Rohini's former husband. So we've been chanting the Matika you know, quite regularly. The five faculties, the five indriya, are included as part of that chant. Actually, also part of that chant, that very, very long word, Ananya Tanyatsa Mitindriya, is appropriate to this theme because it, that means the faculty of knowing the unknown, like knowing that you don't know. I would say that sense of, of openness to the unknown openness to uncertainty is ananyatanyasa mitindriya, the faculty of knowing that you don't know, knowing the unknown. Here it is. I don't know what's going on. It's dark. I can't see. This is mysterious. This is beyond the range of familiarity. This is beyond the range of my knowledge. Ananyatanyasa mitindriya. So just before that, in that chant of the Vipassana Bhumi, then we recite Sadindriyang, Virindriyang, Satindriyang, Samadindriyang, Panindriyang. So those five are called the five indriya or the five faculties. So amongst all the other indriyas, those are highlighted as being the primary spiritual faculties. So they're capacities of the heart, capacities of the jitta that directly conduce to liberation. So they're a very frequent subject of Dhamma teachings, not just in the forest tradition in, in Thailand, which is our sort of immediate origin and source, but throughout the Buddhist world, as I understand. And one of the ways that the five faculties are described is with the image of a bird. The very center of those five, you have sati, or mindfulness. So that's like the body and the central aspect of the bird. That's the life source and also the kind of center balancing point. And so sati represents the integrative principle, that which holds things together, that which is the, the guiding principle for all of these spiritual faculties together. So everything hinges around mindfulness, and that's the life source and the balancing element. So sati is at the center, and then the other faculties there talked about in pairs. So you have Virya and Samadhi, sort of the inner part of the wings, <laughs> as a pair. Energy and concentration need to be balanced with each other. If you have too much concentration and not enough energy, then you're focused, but you're quite dull and sleepy. 
you have too much energy and not enough concentration, then the mind is alert, but it's very agitated and scattered. So energy and concentration need to be balanced with each other. But also, the outer part of the wings, sadha and panya, faith and wisdom, also need to be balanced. They're also a pair that need to be balanced with each other. So if there's a lot of faith and not much wisdom, then we incline towards believing things easily. The mind is very credulous. It just believes them on first contact or the superficial awareness or understanding that mind easily believes and buys into things. And so too much faith and not enough wisdom, then we can be kind of starry-eyed and carried away with things, over-enthusiastic without a lot of discernment or discrimination, without a lot of discretion involved in it. If there's too much wisdom and not enough faith, then the mind inclines towards intellectualism, just getting lost in concepts and mental activity and being skeptical and critical so that the mind doesn't trust anything. It's always questioning and doubting and caught up in intellectualizing. So faith and wisdom then need to be balanced for the bird of the jitta to fly smoothly and effectively. So that quality of sadha, it works best when it's informed by wise reflection and consideration. So trust is not a foolish trusting, an uninformed trusting. There's also that element of investigation and using the discerning faculties to, say, inform that trust, to inform that confidence as well as possible. And similarly, the wisdom is informed by the quality of faith. That sense of you don't have to have everything figured out, you don't have to have a, a completely flawless plan, you don't have to have everything functioning according to your preferences and wishes. You can sort of gather an understanding or a picture of how things work, kind of a conceptual map, but then also you're able to function and attune to living situations without feeling that the mind's got to understand everything, have it all figured out, and have everything planned and, and under personal control. So faith and wisdom work very much as a partnership in this respect. Another aspect of faith, then, it's really to do with how the heart relates to anicca, to uncertainty. If that quality of faith is established in a strong way and there's a letting go of the habits of self-view, self-centered thinking, then that's faith is then essentially the gateway to wisdom. They work together, but it's the, I would say it's the entry point, the beginning point where wisdom can be developed to its full potential, the kind of entry point. I would say is faith, that quality of trust or confidence, because in order for wisdom to be developed, the heart has to be open to anicca, has to be open to uncertainty, if that makes sense. That principle of anicca as the first of the three characteristics, to open, to appreciate the quality of change and uncertainty, if the mind is dominated by ignorance and self-view, then uncertainty produces anxiety and <laughs> intimidation and insecurity and worry. It just kind of brings up a lot of negative emotional agitating states. But if anicca is 
appreciated from a place of a lack of ignorance, from a place of wisdom, of awareness, of clarity, with a lack of self-view, then that quality of uncertainty, it's not threatening or intimidating, it doesn't bring a lot of emotional agitation, but rather it leads directly to peacefulness, to a great ease of heart. In many, many of Lumpo Cha's teachings, we're having these daily readings from the Lumpo Cha's Dharma talks translated in the book Being Dharma. The reflections on Anicca, impermanence and uncertainty, form a very, very strong part of that. In one of Lumpo's talks, the talk is entitled Not Sure, the Standard of the Noble Ones. That's also in the collected teachings of Lumpo Cha. You find that talk as well, not sure, the standard of the noble ones, so that that is where Lumpucha is highlighting that development of uncertainty and recognizing that things are not sure (laughs) as being the gateway to wisdom, the gateway to true nobility of heart. Again, when the uncertainty, the unpredictable nature of things is appreciated from a place of awareness, free of self-view, then that enables the heart to genuinely be in accord with Dhamma, in accord with nature. So in terms of cultivating faith or strengthening the quality of faith and sadha, it's a readiness to open the heart to the fact that our bodies are uncertain, our lives are uncertain, the community is uncertain, the economy is uncertain, the family is uncertain, the climate is uncertain. Wherever we look, our mind states, our mental faculties, see, these are all uncertain. Everywhere we look, everything is uncertain. And the readiness to turn towards those things, those many aspects of life, and say, yes. <laughs> I would say that readiness to turn towards that and to say, yes, this is how it is. It's faith. The sadha is the driver. Sadha is the kind of motivating force in the heart that encourages that. This is really worthwhile doing this. If this is really brought to mind, this is really, say, attended to, then great blessings, great benefit will arise from this. So that in terms of our practice, and whether we're in monastic community or the lay community, whether we're in solo retreat time or engaged in the broader community, to consciously develop, to use sadha, to use the spiritual faculty to strengthen that development of the anicca sanya, that recognition of uncertainty. This is strongly encouraged to keep noticing how from just the force of habit, the mind keeps looking for certainty in that which is uncertain. We keep planning for tomorrow. <laughs> we keep thinking about or assuming what we're going to do or where we're going to go or the things that we're going to have. But we don't reckon on the fact that the body is unpredictable. You assume that you're going to be able to see and hear. You're going to be able to move around. That You'll be able to remember things. <laughs> we make a, a mass of, of uh, assumptions about our life, our faculties, the people around us, the relationships we have, the world we live in. And so that the more that the mind can enliven that recognition of uncertainty and train itself to see that, 
over and over again in all these different dimensions, in our mental states, in our body, our feelings of comfort and discomfort, our physical capacities, our physical health. The more that quality of uncertainty is really appreciated, we have the faith to open the heart to that and say, yes, <laughs> at this moment uh, I can hear, I can see, I can feel, I can move, but you know, in a few moments' time tomorrow, you know, who knows? Like the obvious example of uh, Chandapanyo didn't know a week ago that he wasn't going to be alive this time. You know, when the, last Sunday he was, he'd had some health problems for many years, many, many years. But I would say my informed guess is that last Sunday he didn't know that he wasn't going to be in the world of the living a week later. Not to create too much alarm for us, but <laughs> I would say that is the same for all of us, every single one of us. We don't know that we're going to be here in a week's time or a day's time. We don't know. So notice when I say those words, there's something that goes, mm. <laughs> that's right there is the trigger of self-view and ignorance and the habitual thinking. And then if they're that kind of reactive, oh, that's a shock. If that's passed through, like one walks through those curtains, figuratively speaking, if you pass through that barrier, then on the other side, there's the heart that recognizes, well, of course, <laughs> how could it not be the case? We don't know. Life is uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to be. Aha, of course. And then in that moment, there the heart is in tune with Dhamma itself, so that the development of the anicca sanya, that perception of uncertainty, of change, it's genuinely the gateway to wisdom, the gateway to nobility, the arya, the noble heart, that quality of genuine liberation. It's through that kind of openness to the uncertain nature of the conditioned realm, of the experiential realm of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch the physical world of our body and the world around us. The verse that Lumpur Sumedho often recites at the beginning of a Dhamma talk, Apparuta tesang amatasa tavara ye sotavanta pamunchantu sadhang very regularly begins a Dhamma talk in that way and is kind of a something of a, a motto for Amravati is after the Buddha's enlightenment and after he'd been encouraged to teach by the Brahma Zahampati, this invitation that we have for giving a Dhamma talk, its origins are in that appeal from the Brahma Zahampati coming to the Buddha to say, you know, there are beings with just a little dust in their eyes, please, for the sake of those who have just a little bit of obscuration in their vision, please teach the Dhamma that you know. And the Buddha then cast his vision around the world and realized, yes, well, there are beings with a lot of dust in their eyes, beings that are very confused and deluded, but also there are beings with just a little dust in their eyes. And so for the sake of the undusty, <laughs> then the Buddha chose to teach, and then at that time he made this declaration, the doors to the deathless are open, let those who hear demonstrate their faith or act upon their faith. Aparuta tesang amatasa, the doors to the deathless are open. 
ye sotawantu, those who hear the sotawantu then act upon their faith. So that 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 faith, I would say, is that readiness to turn towards the unknown, the readiness to let go of self-view and conceit, the habits of eye-making and mind-making, to turn to open the heart to the way nature is, to really appreciate the uncertain, unpredictable nature of all things, mental, physical, emotional, social, to open the heart to that. And then it's mysterious that by opening the heart to the death-bound, the changing, <laughs> that which is born and dying, then that is the doorway to the deathless. The gates to the deathless are open. Let those who hear act upon their faith. So it's a mysterious thing. By fully opening the heart to the world of change, then the heart is enabled to attune to the fundamental reality of the unchanging, the unborn, the undying, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed, the timeless reality. So if we are trying to fix the time-bound and to make it predictable and safe and okay for me, then it's doomed to failure. That can never work. But it's through this quality of, say, turning towards the realm of change, the realm of birth and death, opening the heart to it, having the faith to open the heart completely to uncertainty, to fully accept that, fully receive that, then the opposite of vulnerability is what's experienced. The unshakable quality of, of the invulnerable is the invulnerable Dhamma, the unshakable Dhamma, that unborn, undying, unconditioned quality is what is realized. That's what's awakened to as the fundamental nature of this citta, this heart of ours. And that, I would say, is the essence of insight, is recognizing that the jitta is dhamma, it's not a person. It's so easy for the mind to cast things in a personal mode. My mind, my body, my practice, my retreat, my living place, you know, my life. It's so ordinary, so automatic for us, but as the heart opens to the way things are, and there's the development of that appreciation of uncertainty and then the heart transcends that and awakens to its own reality which is dhamma the jitta the heart is dhamma it's not a person it knows the personal qualities arising and passing like seeing the body or choosing words to say and being physically located in a particular spot but the mind which knows rupa which knows material form has no form the mind which knows the arising and passing of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought and feeling, it's formless. That which knows masculinity and femininity has no gender, that has no nationality. That which knows Englishness or Americanness or Frenchness or Italianness or Thai-ness or whatever our nationalities might be, the awareness of the jitta has no nationality, no age. It's unlocated when you say, oh, I am sitting here on the Dhamma seat, we are in the temple, Amravati. But that which knows physical location is unlocated. <laughs> Three-dimensional space doesn't apply to that quality of awareness. So the more that the wisdom is clarified, then the more the heart embodies this quality of knowing, and this quality of awareness itself and knows the patterns of that which arises and passes away, but it becomes more and more clear that the awareness is present, 
is not identified or not limited by all that, which is being born and dying, the breath coming in, the breath going out, feelings of comfort and discomfort, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, arising and passing away. The heart that knows that, the quality of vidya, of awareness, is the quality that knows that, but it's not identified with that, not limited by that. So that that which knows the person, this which knows the person, is not a person. This quality of awareness, which is knowing the sound of these words, and knowing the feelings in the body, knowing the visual perceptions and tones of emotion, you know, this which knows the personal experience, is not a person. It's not female or male, not old or young, not tall or short. It has no age, no location, no nationality, no name. It can't possibly be personal. It's known here, it functions here through the vehicle of these particular lives, these particular gateways, these portals. But in essence, that quality of awakened awareness, that vijadhatu, the element of knowing, is not personal, is not, say, own, is not ownable, it's ever-present. It's the very means through which all things are experienced and known. I feel it's skillful to reflect in this way because just dropping that kind of a recollection into the field of awareness, just a little recollection or a reminder like that to consider this which knows the person is not a person. The mind is Dhamma, not a person. Just for a moment to feel the clarity or the, the shift of view that comes from that, to use uh, reflections of that nature to awaken the wisdom, the intuition of the heart that knows that to be true already, <laughs> that has those moments of clarity whereby, yes, this mind, this heart is knowing the world. It knows these personal qualities of the sensations of the body or the shape or the colors, and tones and textures of the body, but it doesn't have a body. <laughs> this awareness is completely non-material, it's non-personal but it's the means through which all things are known. Aha! It's the very heart of life, the very heart of experience, but in its purity, in its essence, it's completely non-personal. It's not an individual. It's not a self. It doesn't belong to a self. And in that moment of recognition, that moment of, oh, <laughs> look at this, then feel that, know that, even if it's just for a finger snap, just for a moment half a second or a second, let that be known, those moments of clarity, let those be known, and that then becomes the basis for faith, that it feeds that quality of sadha, confidence, that in your heart you know, <laughs> oh, this is really how it is, so let's not be fooled by all of the busyness, the entanglement in relationships and thoughts and memories and plans, and that the acknowledgement of those moments of clarity, the acknowledgement, the, the understanding that at the very heart of this life, this quality of awakened awareness, it knows this life, but it's not limited by this life. It knows the world of birth and death, 
but it's not being born and dying. The more that's fully acknowledged and recognized, then that supports the quality of faith, the readiness to be open to each moment in an unbiased and courageous way, a brave way. There's no things that the heart is threatened by in terms of appreciating uncertainty or the fragility, unpredictability. It feeds that quality of faith. What could be lost? <laughs> and who could lose it? Ah, there's a great ease, great peace, a great spaciousness. It arises as a direct consequence of that insight. So I offer these words for consideration this evening. Sorry.